Okay, now if you would, if you have a Bible, please turn it to the book of 2 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please feel free to borrow one of the Bibles in these black chair back pockets, the paperback ones. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Um, So we're turning to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament, so towards the back. It's after Romans and 1 Corinthians. And we've got PowerPoint. Thank you, Lord. Um, So Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you hit Galatians, you've gone too far. The book of 2 Corinthians, turning to chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. If this is your first time with us or you're visiting for the first time in a while, uh, Pastor Ryan and I have been preaching through a series on generosity, not, not on a specific practice of generosity like tithing or volunteering, but on a life of generosity, a life of, of pouring out love to those around you, a wonderful, satisfying kind of life. And, and we've been picking up different themes on generosity from two chapters in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, 2 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. And one of the themes in this letter, in these chapters, is the theme of leadership. How leadership interacts with generosity. Um, And and I'm going to admit to you this morning that I have a slight reluctance to even be talking about this with you this morning. Not because I don't love teaching God's word to you. Not because I don't love what God's word has to say about this. But because I know what happens in some of your hearts when you hear the words Christian leader and money together. Um, the, the history of Christian leaders and the use of money is not a uniformly good one. And so maybe, maybe you've had really bad experiences with a pastor in your life taking money from the church or, or always wanting a raise, always wanting more um, for him or herself. Or maybe you haven't had a personal experience, but you've just seen news stories about um, Christian leaders, television preachers who have this opulent lifestyle, giant houses, luxurious cars, um, and not for the sake of the gospel, but for their own sake. And so, um, so when you hear leaders and money, you, you sort of go on alert. Like maybe not red alert, but maybe like yellow alert, kind of heightened awareness of what's going to happen. And so part of me would love to just never preach on money. So you never have to worry about whether Ryan and I are just in it for the cash, just in it for the paycheck and what we can get you guys to give us. So part of me is reluctant, but another part of me, a larger part of me, is eager to be looking at this this morning because this is God's word. And if God loves us, and he does, then everything his word says is good for us. And so we can trust that he has goodness for us this morning. And I think when you see what, what God says about leadership in the life of the generous, uh, the generous church, um, you'll be glad that for the way that God has set this up. So um, we're going to turn our attention to 2 Corinthians. I just want to give you a little background about what's happening. So, um, so Paul actually has a pretty long history at this church. This, we call this letter 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, but it's, it's not just the second letter he's written. It's just the second letter we have. We know that Paul has written this church at least four times, that he spent 18 months living there at one point, that he's visited them twice. He's got a long relationship, and a lot of times the relationship has been rocky. Like, Paul and the Corinthians are always butting heads because of some people that have come into the church trying to turn them against Paul because of some things going on in the church that, that Paul had to call them out on that was really painful. He's had this, this long, kind of tortured history with this church, but right now, Paul is on top of the world as he's writing this letter because he's just had a report from his buddy Titus, who has been to visit the church, came back, and said, Paul, 
everything's going great in Corinth. They're, they're turning from sin. They love God. They are so eager to see you again. They'd love for you to come visit. And so Paul sits down and writes out this just, he just starts to express his thanks and his love to the Corinthians in this letter, 2 Corinthians. He's written to tell them he's coming to, get, he's coming to visit them for a third time. And now that they're sort of back on the right path, he wants to give them some instructions for how to keep going. And one of those instructions is he wants them to get some money together. So in the past, in, in actually in 1 Corinthians, Paul had told them about this, this trouble the Christians in Jerusalem were having, that um, they, were, they were undergoing a season of suffering, partially probably because they were being persecuted for their faith, being being Christians in a place where a lot of people still didn't trust in Jesus, and because there was a famine that was causing, you know, food prices to go up, you can imagine, lots of poverty. And so Paul was going to these churches around the Mediterranean and collecting money to take to the Christians in Jerusalem. And so he he had told them, start putting some money aside. And then that kind of got put on hold while they were in their little spat. So now he's saying, now that we're back in, in good graces, I want, you to, I want you to get that money together again. So he said, he's sending them this letter, carried by Titus, and accompanied by two other people, to tell them how to get the money ready. And that's what these two chapters are about. Um, so they give, us, they give us a window into how Paul himself leads people into generosity. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So please follow along in your Bibles or on the screen as I read um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, and then 16 through 24. This is God's word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Will you pray with me? 
Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that it is life to us, it is bread to us, that it is powerful, it's a sword. Thank you that, that when your word is preached, that you are speaking, because that's what we need. We need to hear from you, God. We don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from you. And so please come and speak and help us to hear what you have to say from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in this passage, God, through the Apostle Paul, gives us two responsibilities of leaders and one result of their faithful leadership. Two responsibilities and one result. And so the first responsibility of leaders is stir up love by reminding of grace. Stir up love by reminding of grace. So Paul sees his responsibility as a leader of the Corinthians not just to tell them what to do, not just to to tell them, now these are the rules, and you need to follow the rules and go do it. But he sees his responsibility as actually stirring up their love so that their generosity, their their giving flows freely from their hearts. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He wants this to be an act of love. Look at verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So, so Paul is after their hearts. He's not after their just obedience. He wants their generosity to be an act of love, to prove their love. So, so how does he seek to get their love flowing? He reminds them of God's generosity, of God's grace freely given to them. And he does it first by, by telling them a story about some other churches. The churches in Macedonia, which is like the province north of where Corinth is. So look at chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul says to the Corinthians, I want you to know where generosity comes from. I want you to know how this happens. He says there's this, these churches in Macedonia and they have nothing He says that they're in a severe test of affliction. They have extreme poverty. And he says that that even though they were so poor, that they were able to overflow in a wealth of generosity for this collection. So, So how, in their affliction, were they able to be so generous? Paul says it's because of their abundance of joy. He says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And that's where Paul sees the grace of God. These, these Macedonian Christians, they had nothing. They didn't, they didn't find their joy in money. They didn't find their joy in a comfortable life. They found their joy in God. Paul says in verse 5, he says that they, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So in, in light of all that Jesus had done for them, in light of, of all that Jesus had done in saving them, bringing them to himself, they offered themselves to God And then, by God's will, they gave generously to the collection. Paul says that he didn't have to twist their arm. He didn't have to stand up and beg them to give. He says that they begged him for the favor of being able to be generous to these people. They begged him to be able to give. Have you ever been in a position like that where someone just, they won't take no for an answer? They're just so 
They're so determined to love you. It's not like the sort of begrudging, like, you don't, you don't want some help with that, do you? But, but, like, I'm going to help you. Shut up. Don't try to stop me. This is happening. That, that's the kind of love that my wife and I experienced when our, our son was born. Our son, Asher, was born in December. We, like, it was, he was born early, and there was a lot of stuff going on, and so we had some friends come and watch Joshua, and we said, we want you to absolutely not clean our house. In fact, like, don't even open your eyes when you come into our house. Just, like, close your eyes, run in, grab the child, and go. We don't want you to see what it's like in there. And the first day I came home from the hospital, our house was clean. And there was money on the refrigerator that no one would tell us where it came from. We had friends bring cases of diapers from the States, and they wouldn't let us pay them. They, they, just, they begged us to let them help. It was so genuine. It wasn't an obligation. It was a joy. It wasn't just an overflow of wealth. It was an overflow of love. And that's what Paul wants to see happen in Corinth, which is why he tells them about these Macedonians who are able to be so generous. He says that the, the grace of God in these, gener- in these poor Macedonians overflowed in generosity. So, so the key to generosity, it isn't having a lot of things. It's having a lot of joy. Joy is where generosity comes from. So where, where can these Corinthians get joy? If, if joy is the key, is, if joy is what overflows, where can they get more of it? Well, we get more joy by seeing that the greatest act of grace, the greatest act of generous love in the history of the world was done for us. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He says that Jesus was rich. So before Jesus came to earth, he had the ultimate riches. He had always been in the presence of God. He had perfect joy. He had the assurance of God's love. And and he shared God's glory. And having all those things in his love, he wanted them for us. And so so he left those things because we were poor. We didn't have the assurance of God's love. We didn't have the hope of eternity with him. We didn't have his glory because we'd all turned away from him. We had all wandered away from God. And so So Jesus, in his riches, seeing our poverty, said, I want you to have what I have, even if I have to give it up so you can. And so he gave up the glory and was born as a man. He gave up the perfect joy and became a man of sorrows. He gave up, even for six hours on a cross, he gave up the presence of God. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. He took our punishment so we could have his acceptance. He took our death so we could have his life. He took our sorrows so we could have his joy. His joy. That's where it comes from. That's where the joy comes from, is knowing that we're loved and accepted by God, knowing that, that God will always take care of us, that we can't, we can't give so much that God will stop watching out for us. And that's the joy that overflowed from the Macedonians, and that's the joy... Paul wants to see in Corinth. I read this story recently of a man named Michael who was born in Ethiopia, but he had to flee from Ethiopia into Kenya um, because of persecution by the communist regime um, in Ethiopia. And so he was living in this foreign country. He was homeless. He was on the street. And a pastor found him, and he brought him home and fed him and clothed him and shared the good news about Jesus with him. And Michael trusted in Christ. He was born again 
And so when he went back to Ethiopia, he was looking for, now how can I love the way I've been loved? And so he started collecting orphans, these children that had been left parentless either because of the government or by AIDS. He started bringing them into his home. And some of these kids had full-blown AIDS themselves. One of them was living like an animal. He was sleeping at night with wild dogs to protect him from hyenas. That's how bad his life was. And, and, and Michael is bringing these children into his home, and he's feeding them and clothing them and teaching them and restoring them. So he was shown love. He was shown grace by a pastor and, above all, by God. And now his joy is overflowing into the lives of children. And that's, and that's how it's supposed to work. Experiencing grace leads to joy, and joy overflows in generous love. So it's the responsibility of your leaders, your pastors and your elders, your community group leaders, to be stirring up generosity that way, not by obligation, not by making you feel like you owe it to us because we work so hard for you and we put on this Sunday service and you ought to pay us for it and, um, you know, like membership dues, like you, you owe us this money, but, but by stirring up your love by pointing to Jesus and what he's done and how great a savior he is. Like Paul, we want generosity to come from your hearts as an overflow of joy. So that's what we're supposed to do. But what about you? What are you supposed to do? Well, follow us as we go this way, the path of joy. If you're not seeing an overflow of generosity in your life to the people around you, if you're not seeing your joy overflowing, then don't focus first on your giving. Don't just try to bump up the number and fix it. Focus on your joy. Focus on your joy. Are you, are you filling your mind with truth about Jesus? Are you building your life around him? Or are you building around something else that's never going to satisfy you the way that Jesus does? If, and if your joy is being stirred up, then you don't need to be a formal leader to be stirring other people's joy as well. You can, in your, in your friendships, in your marriage, in your community groups, with your children, pointing to Jesus to stir up their love to overflow and generosity. So our first responsibility is to stir up love by reminding of grace. And the second responsibility we see in this passage is cultivate trust by stewarding with integrity. Cultivate trust by stewarding with integrity. So Paul is trying, he's trying to get their love flowing freely, but that's not all he's trying to do. Because Paul wants this overflow of generosity to go somewhere specifically. He wants it to go into this collection. So he's not just saying be generous in general, although he'd love them to be. He's saying also be generous to this. He wants them to entrust their generosity to him for the suffering Christians. So in the middle of chapter 8, Paul transitions from saying where grace, where generosity comes from, which is out of joy in Jesus, to telling them where their generosity should go, which is the collection. He tells them why Titus is coming and, and who's coming with him. So look at verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, our, our appeal to come take the collection, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous, from, famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our goodwill. Now look at verse 22. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often trusted, tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever, 
because of his great confidence in you. So Paul wants them to see that they can trust these guys, these guys who are coming to take the money, that they can trust him. He says, Titus is coming, and you know Titus. Titus loves you. He cares about you. You can trust him. And these guys that are coming that you don't know, one of these guys is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel, which doesn't mean he was like a celebrity television preacher. It means that he was so devoted to the gospel that he gained his reputation for for preaching even in the Roman Empire, which was hostile to Christianity. So he says, this guy is famous for loving Jesus. You can trust him. And the other brother, he says, is earnest and is confident in you. So he's saying, these guys that are coming, you can trust them. And not only are they trustworthy guys, but Paul wants them to know that those two other guys, the guys coming with Titus, he says, I I didn't even send these guys, okay? He says that they were appointed by the churches, He has been appointed by the churches to travel with us. He says in verse 23, as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. Paul says, these aren't even my guys. If there's any funny business with the money, these guys are going to know, and they're going to tell all the churches. You you can trust us. We have integrity. Nothing funny is going to happen. So why is Paul telling them all this? Well, look in verse 20. He says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. He's saying it's not enough for us to just know that we're taking care of the money, to just know that we have integrity, to know that we're honoring the Lord. He said we want to do it in the sight of man. We want, we want everyone to be able to see that we are above reproach with this money. We want everyone to be able to see that we're doing what's honorable. So for eight weeks in the fall of 1949 in Los Angeles, in California, Billy Graham held basically nightly meetings for eight weeks. It was his first major crusade. Um, And and over the course of the eight weeks, 350,000 people came to a meeting. 3,000 people expressed that they trusted in Christ. The coverage of the crusade was in prominent American publications, Newsweek, Time, the New York Times, and Billy Graham suddenly became this national figure. So that was the fall of 1949. But in the fall of 1948, he met with his friends in a city called Modesto, California, to talk some church history, to talk about past revivals, past evangelists, and how they'd fallen short, the things that had tripped them up. And they identified four key areas. Sexual immorality, criticizing other clergy, money, misusing money, and then exaggerating their results, saying that that more people had come than really had. And so because they identified that misusing money was one of these big things that just tripped evangelists up, they made all these safeguards to make sure that they would never be accused of that. So for most of his career, Billy Graham didn't get any money from the Crusades. None of that that love offering went into his pocket. He got a salary, like the salary of a, a pastor of a large urban church. That's all he lived on, and then everything else went into the ministry. So why did he do it that way? Well, he knew that if there was even like a whiff of a rumor that he was, you know, building swimming pools and buying luxury cars, that that money was going to him, that he would lose his hearing for the gospel, that the gospel would stop going forward through him because people wouldn't trust him anymore. And so from the beginning, he put these safeguards in place so that everyone would know he was doing what was honorable with the money. And that's what Paul is after here. He wants to cultivate trust by stewarding with integrity. Because there was, there was no watchdog group in the first century 
the, you know, Paul was never subjected to an audit. He, he, people would give him bags of money, and then he would have to take those bags of money over land and over sea and then deliver the bag of money to the people for whom it was meant. He'd have all this opportunity to just pull a little out if he wanted to. And so he had, he had to make sure that everybody knew he was handling the money well. So even though Paul is ultimately accountable to God alone, he wants to make sure to do what's honorable in the sight of men. And the leaders of Sunrise try to do the same. So the elder team that leads the church has two paid elders, two pastors, and two lay elders who have no financial stake in the business of the church. So, so there's, there's not four paid guys making all the decisions about where the money goes. And, and neither of the pastors, neither me nor Pastor Ryan, are signatories on, the, ch- on the, the church account. So we can't even spend money without going through the approval and the participation of the lay elders. Our books aren't kept by the pastors. They're kept by a, a, a godly guy in the church who used to be an elder, does it every month for us so joyfully. The, the collection, the offering, ideally we never touch it. It's, it's taken by greeters. The greeters, they count it in the back, and then they hand it off to a lay elder to deposit in the in the bank, right after church on Sunday. So, so Ryan and I want to touch money as little as possible because we don't want there to be even a whiff of a problem with the way that we steward it. We, we don't want you to have to just take our word for it, that, that we're doing what's above board. We want you to be able to see that we couldn't even do something wrong if we wanted to because we want there to be integrity so the gospel goes forward. We know that it takes trust for you to give to sunrise. Like, it always takes trust in God to give anything. Trust they'll take care of you. But it takes trust in the pastors to give to the church, to, to trust that it's going into ministry, not just going into luxury. So we want to keep your trust through having absolute integrity and showing sincere love to you. So if you, don't, if you ever think that we're not doing that, if something ever seems funny to you, if you want to look into our budget, please say something. We don't want you to just take our word for it, okay? Like, we're not perfect people. We welcome you watching out for us because we don't want the gospel ever to be hindered by any rumors about money. So this is how leadership and giving are supposed to relate in the church. The leaders are supposed to stir up the church to generous love through reminding of Jesus, and then as the generosity flows, the pastors with integrity are to to aim it different places, to direct it into cross-cultural missions to unreached people groups and to needs at home, to, to people in the church that are having a hard go. And, and, and when it's working right, when that's happening, when the joy is being stirred and the generosity is being directed with integrity, what's the result? The result is multiplied impact for the glory of God. So Paul's ultimate aim in all of this, he says in verse 19, he says that the reason why he's doing everything that he's doing is for the glory of the Lord himself. It's the reason why he wants them to be generous. It's the reason why he wants to have integrity. He wants to glorify the Lord. Look at, we're just going to hop into the passage that Ryan will preach next week. We'll just take a peek, but I want you to turn to chapter 9, verse 12. He says, For the ministry of this service, this collection, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. So when the Corinthians get this money together, and they combine it with the money from Macedonia and the other churches, there's going to be this huge amount of money traveling to these Christians in Jerusalem. And they're going to get this gift, and they're going to be blown away. They're going to say, wait, you mean, you mean that Christians we've never met 
Gentile Christians, poor Christians, have given this money to us. Like, this, this is for our relief, and they're going to thank God because they know that God is the one who has ultimately given it. So, so when our generosity is an overflow of joy in God, and when it's directed with this multiplied impact together to these places, people are going to thank God for it. And when they thank God, he's going to get glory. And the more generous we are, the more glorified he'll be. And that's what's possible at sunrise. We don't, we don't want you to just like to give just enough to keep the lights on and the bills paid and the pastor's kids eating every day, right? That's, that's never been a problem. We want to stir up generosity so that we can do things with the money that we could never do on our own, like cover the enrollment fees for kids at Georgetown Primary in the after-school program whose parents can't afford to send them but also can't keep them at home because both parents work. Or making a gift to our friend Nelson Salviano in Brazil who, uh, who built a building in his backyard where pastors who can't afford the time or money to go to seminary can come learn how to preach the Bible and care for the church. Or supporting Terrell and Amber Schrock in Uganda where Terrell's been working on a, on a, a grammar for the language of the people group among whom they live so that not only can they bless their culture with this grammar, but so they can communicate the gospel to them in a way they couldn't before. Or Joe Denton in Tree of Life in Honduras, where we've sent uh, a team before. Joe is thinking about maybe building an orphanage in 2015. Or um, one of our newer mission partners, Adam and Paula Gordon, I don't have a picture of them, but they're planting a church today, their first service today in Lima, Peru, and we're able to bless them because of your generosity. And there are things we haven't even thought of yet. So, um, so what's possible when we all give generously is this multiplied impact around the world. So I have in my mind a very silly picture, and I hope you'll forgive the silliness of this picture, but it's a picture of how I conceive of leadership and generosity interacting, okay? So I don't know what your parents' convictions were on play violence when you were a kid, but my parents allowed me to use play guns. And so when, when it was hot in the summer and the, the neighborhood boys were antsy, we'd get together and we'd have a water gun fight. Water guns and water balloons, but the water guns are what I'm focusing on right now. And so when I, was, when I was real young, the gold standard of water guns was the water pistol. Okay, it, Simple, elegant, easily concealed. You, you squeeze the trigger, you get one squirt. Okay, and that, and that was the gold standard. And then when I was about eight years old, there was a new weapon taking the neighborhood by storm, the super soaker. And if you're not familiar with the super soaker, here's how it works. It works on air pressure. Okay, so you, you pump the gun until it's hard to pump, and then there's so much air pressure in the tank, all you have to do is you pull the trigger. You don't have to squirt it. You just pull the trigger, and it just blows this massive spray of water out the end. And so... It took no time for the water pistol to be totally obsolete in Holly Hills. So, so here's, here's how I see that relating to generosity. So the role, of, um, the role of pastors and leaders in the church is to keep the pressure of joy in the church high. So we know that generosity is an overflow of joy. So we, we want to be constantly keeping the pressure of joy high by preaching about Jesus and pointing to him and reading his word and praying together. We want we want to be always stirring up the joy of the church in Christ so that the pressure is high. And then when there are these needs, we can release this massive stream of love to mission partners and to needs in the church 
because all of our generosity is working together. So, so we're, we're keeping the pressure high, and then we're aiming the generosity right where it needs to go. Um, everyone's contribution comes together. There's a multiplied impact, and it goes to the glory of God. Now, one thing I don't at all mean to say is that all of your giving has to come through sunrise. Like, like you can't just be generous to a neighbor or give to a missionary or support a nonprofit um, without like checking with the pastors first and like having it go through the church checking account. That's not at all what I mean to say. But what I want to envision you with is when you give to sunrise, you're not just giving to an institution. To I mean, we don't have a building, so you're not giving to a building. You're not giving just to salaries or to overhead. You're giving to a mission. The mission of introducing people in Cayman and around the world to Jesus and helping them grow by his grace. And, and as people here and around the world experience the multiplied impact of our generosity, they're going to give thanks to God. And that's going to bring him glory. And that's why we exist. We exist for the glory of God. It's why we exist. It's why we're called to be generous. And it's why God has entrusted the stewardship of giving to leaders in the church. So I hope you'll pray for the leaders of the church. I hope you'll draw our attention to places where generosity is needed. I hope you'll ask questions if anything ever seems fishy. If, we're, if it ever seems like we're not leading by grace or with integrity. Leaders, if, if I can say this with credibility, as a leader, are a good thing. They're a good gift from God when it's working this way, leading by grace and people following us. So if I can ask, if I can ask you, are you playing your part in this? Are you soaking in the grace of God yourself, reminding yourself what Jesus has done, how much God loves you, what he's been doing in your life? Are you following the leaders of the church, your community group leaders, as they go deeper and deeper in the understanding of what Jesus has done? Are you stirring up one another, encouraging one another, helping us keep the pressure of joy high so our generosity overflows in love? And as your joy builds, are you giving freely to the people around you, to the needs that come across your path, and, yes, to the church, so that the multiplied impact of our giving causes thanksgiving and joy to go to God? Are you moving this way with us? If not, then this is your invitation to join in. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, above all, for Jesus. We thank you that he, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich, that he gave up all that he had with you to become a man, to die on a cross, so that we could share his joy and share his life and share his acceptance with you. Thank you for him. God, I pray that you would, that you would build the pressure of generosity, that you would, you would build the joy of this church through remembering Jesus. Even now as we sing, that you would build our joy and that you would cause it to overflow in generosity that glorifies you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.